come on a journey with a cinephile. everybody to episode 17 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr and today on this episode i have featured reviews of the cabinet of dr caligari from 1920 and this is like i said the first centennial club so the other one will be the lodge which got its full release here in 2020 and i also will have mini reviews of goodnight mommy noriko's dinner table Fantasy Island, Brahms, The Boy 2, Cropsey, and as well as the original Omen from 1976. But what I'm going to go ahead and do first, though, is since this is going to be the first episode of March, I'm going to do my monthly review for February. Monthly review. Okay, and for the month of February, I watched six new horror films from 2020, 30 horror films of the 36 movies that I watched. Now, the horror films that I watched in the month of February would be Atlantics, The Creature Walks Among Us, Ganja and Hess, Transylvania, Ring You, Murder Party, Gretel and Hansel, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, Tales of Halloween, Come to Daddy, Prevenge, Teeth, Edge of Sanity, House, The Creeping Flesh, After Midnight, Eat Brains Love, Abby, Psycho 3, VFW, The Lodge, Best Worst Movie, Goodnight Mommy, Noriko's Dinner Table, Fantasy Island, Brahms The Boy 2, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Cropsey, The Omen and the Invisible Man, with the earliest horror movie that I watched for this month. I know I did watch the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde short film from before 1920, I'm not including it on here only because it is a short, so I can't consider it on the movie's watch list. I did do a review of it, I believe, last episode. So technically, the earliest horror movie that I watched for this month would end up having to be The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari at 1920. But aside from that, it would be The Creature Walks Among Us at 1956. And then the lowest rated horror movie that I watched for the month of February would be Transylvania which was a 5.5. And then at the moment, the highest rated horror movies that I watched for February would be Ringu, the original 1998 one from Japan at a 9.5. The other ones that would actually fall into this are going to be all featured on this episode. So I'm not going to play my hand too early on which ones they are and what the ratings will be. But as you continue on with this episode, you will figure that out. And the six new horror films that I watched this month would be Gretel and Hansel, Come to Daddy, After Midnight, Fantasy Island, Brahms the Boy 2, 
The Invisible Man. And then technically as well, I did watch VFW, Eat Brains Love, and The Lodge all last year at a film festival. But I did also watch them again this month too. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to our first musical break before I get into the mini reviews of the films that I watched for this week.
Okay, and for my first mini review of this week, I got to see Goodnight Mommy for the first time at the Gateway Film Center. This is written and directed by Severin Fiali and Veronica Franz. This is starring Lucas Schwarz, Elias Schwarz, and Suzanne Wiest. This movie originally was made in 2014. Horror mystery thriller film from Austria. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being twin boys move to a new home with their mother after she has face-changing cosmetic surgery, but under her bandages is someone the children don't recognize. Now, this was a movie that I remember first hearing about when I got right into, you know, listening to podcasts. So it's been a few years after, you know, back then I added it on a list of films to see. And as I said, I lucked out that I got to see this on the big screen at Gateway Film Center. As I'm pretty sure they were showing it due to the writer and director Fiali and Franz's new film, The Lodge, was just being released. I was actually really surprised that my girlfriend Jamie stated that even though she's pretty new to the genre, she randomly had seen this around the time that it came out on DVD. So I told her my plan over breakfast was to watch this and she elected to join me as well. Don't really need to kind of recap everything because I do feel like the synopsis kind of breaks it down as there is definite mistrust that these two boys don't believe that this woman who is in bandages is actually their mother. And even kind of going more into that as they try to do research into figuring out who she actually is or is she actually their real mother. Now, I will admit, I, well, I, I will say, when I was reading up on some trivia after getting home while writing this, I learned that there really wasn't a script. I'm actually surprised by this as this movie works pretty well for one that doesn't have, you know, kind of each scene I'm assuming was probably rehearsed and then they kind of went over what they needed to get across in it. And I think everything kind of works well in doing that. And this was also shot in chronological order, so I do feel that helps as well. All right, now, despite there being a simple story here, there's quite a bit still to delve into this movie. These two boys are quite intriguing. They're twins, and I think that does a lot to their adds a lot to their performance. We're also getting that this is mostly from their point of view, which does make you question if some of the things that they're seeing are actually happening. And I do find it creepy that they keep cockroaches as pets, and they have quite a few of them. And I also feel bad for the punishment that the mother hands down with them. Elias has some pretty traumatic things done to him and Lucas is pretty much ignored which I should also point out here then that the two actors who play these boys that's the same exact name of their characters so it's you know Lucas Schwarz is playing Lucas Elias Schwarz is playing Elias and then Weist is playing Mutter or Mother in American and something I also wanted to delve into here is the boys not recognizing their mother she has a nose job so she's in bandages I would say for the first half of this movie it does make sense that they would think that she could be someone else the medication that she's on is making her quite moody, and I mean, she's just going through recovery, so that doesn't help either. And then on top of that, there's a video of her where she has different colored eyes. She points out this is due to contacts, you know, which is logical. There's just some interesting scenes early on where they're playing a guessing game, and the mother can't get the answer. They're playing the game where they write a name of either like a thing or a person, and you put it on your head, and you have to guess through asking, you know, contacts, clues, and some of the answers that is given to you it's genius that they put mama on that one which i don't know if you did that to me if i would be able to guess who it is but they're really trying to hint at some of the things and she's just not getting it it doesn't really prove anything but these children are kind of disturbed some of the punishments they're getting so i do see how it you know plays into that if i did have an issue with this movie i would say that it runs a bit long 
I like the idea that they're working with, and the film has me cringing during the climax. There's just a bit early on in the second act that kind of lost me for a stretch. I think it does get a little bit repetitive, and not having a full script really could be why it does that. It is interesting, though, to see how this writer-director team corrects this for their next film, though, for me, for sure. I do like where this ends up and the possible implications of what we see at the end. Now, what I did really enjoy here was the acting. The two boys aren't great, but there's just something creepy about them. I do think in part of this is the fact that they're twins. They're also so convinced that this can't be their mother that they really will do everything as they descend into madness through frustration to prove it. And building on that, I did say earlier the punishments that they're given really don't help that. Weist really did well, and I feel quite bad for her as to what happens. She's also kind of to blame, which I don't necessarily want to victim shame here, but she does semi-deserve some of the things that I think happen with the kind of way that she's punishing these boys. And the rest of the cast I thought was fine in rounding out for what was needed. Now, something I will say that I really liked as well were the effects, which we don't get a lot. The ones we do, though, are pretty brutally realistic, if I'm going to be honest. There were a couple scenes with superglue that had me cringing. On top of that, the blood looks quite real. You can see that they did this with practical effects, and it works so much better than CGI, which I do think there was a bit of that when it comes to things that were on fire later in the movie, but it doesn't linger on it long enough for me really to critique that, and I think that's strategic. The cinematography was really good, and that also helps the movie along. The soundtrack, I thought, was pretty well done also. I did notice that for Long Stretch there isn't one. I think that is effective in building some of the awkwardness that we get here. We do get some string-style music through some of the more tense scene, which does help to build that tension. This movie had my anxiety going when things get crazy, and the score really does help there. Now, with that said, I really did like this movie, and I'm glad that I finally saw it. I think this really has some interesting aspects that it is exploring. We get a descent into madness and mistrust through that. I think the acting really does help to bring this to life. The effects made me cringe with the realism, and I think the soundtrack really fit for what was needed in helping to build tension, or the lack of a score at times that gives you an uneasy feeling as well. If I did have any issues, I do think it runs a bit long. Not enough to ruin it, but it as it does hook me back in from the middle on for sure. My rating of this would be a good movie and would say to give this a viewing. There is a stretch that I'm not sure non-horror fans would be able to handle, but if you can get through that, I think there's some intriguing little aspects to this movie and an interesting little story. So my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. And for my second review of this is going to be Noriko's Dinner Table. This came out in 2005. It is written and directed by Sion Sono, as well as from the novel that he also wrote. It stars Kazui Fukishi, Tushigumi, and Yuriko Yoshitaka. This is a drama horror film from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... A teenager runs away from her family to Tokyo, where she gets involved with a strange group of people. Now, I'm sure this is a film that I think intrigued me back when I was in college, and I added it to my Netflix list for, you know, the DVDs in the mail. And I finally got it just recently and decided to check it out. I came in pretty blind aside from that and didn't even realize until I started to check it out that it was from Sono. And I didn't realize it was also technically a prequel that is also running concurrently and is kind of a sequel to the film Suicide Club. A film that I haven't seen yet, but I've heard really good things and I have it on my shortlist to check out. Now this is one that we start off learning about our main character who is Noriko Shimabara, who is portrayed by Fukushi. 
as she runs away from home. She is from a small town of Toyokama, Japan, and then flees to Tokyo, as the synopsis stated. Now, this movie is not told in a linear way, as it is broken up into five chapters, with each one following our four main characters, and then a final chapter to bring everything together. Now, I would have to say, I'm a bit upset with myself that I didn't do a little bit more research into this movie before watching it. I would have sought out Suicide Club first and then watched this. And I will say, I did watch an interview with Sono after completing the movie that was on my DVD, which made me feel a bit better to know that it really doesn't affect the story. It really just seems to explain some more aspects from the other movie, you know, a little bit more in depth. Now, something I will say I liked about this movie is all of the social commentary that we're working with. I kind of want to break down the four main characters, as each one really does seem to be tackling a different issue with some overlap. Now, the first chapter is following Noriko. Now, something that translates here, according to Sono, which I did end up agreeing with after, you know, thinking about it, is that she's grown up in a small town with a strict father. There are not a lot of young women around her that she can connect with, so she goes online. Now, I'm a male, and I did feel lost after college, and it took me getting into this hobby here of reviewing horror films, as well as getting into podcasts, that I really found my place and started to, you know, enjoy things a bit more around me. As I will admit, I do kind of deal with some depression, so, you know, doing all this stuff really does help. And I feel horrible for Noriko as she wants to go to college in Tokyo, but her father doesn't want her to, as he just doesn't really understand. And a lot of it is from the fact that her cousins went there and they all came back pregnant. Now, playing off of this, she's a bright girl with a thirst for knowledge, the strictness of her father causes her to run away and into a situation that she ends up finding herself in when she arrives in Tokyo. And the chapter after that follows her sister Yuka, who is portrayed by Yoshi Taka. Now she ends up following her sister to Tokyo. What I found interesting here is that Noriko thinks that her sister is the golden child, but when we see from Yuka's point of view, she actually really admires her sister. We don't get a lot of that in that first chapter though, and Yuka really does seem to fit more into the system in Japan and that you know as they're really known for their family ties and not dishonoring them Yuka sees what Noriko does to put it on the path that ends up making her leave she wants her father to find them though and she leaves clues behind so this almost makes it into like a mystery novel which I found to be intriguing seeing this from multiple points of view is a great way to build this story as well in my opinion we next then follow Kamiko who is played by Tsugumi and she also goes by online of the name of Inu Station 54. Now, when she first arrives at the station, she does show up with a, quote, family, unquote. We learn through this interaction that what she does for work is that she will send people, including herself, to live out their fantasies with clients. The people that we saw her show up with there aren't really her family, but they were pretending and they're paying her to pretend to be their daughter. And then we get another example of this is Noriko and her go to a man's house to pretend to be rebellious sisters for a lonely man. I found this intriguing that this is something these young women could do for money. But going back to how strong family ties are, if you don't have a family, you're probably lonely and would pay for something like that as it's not that much different from somebody visiting a prostitute, you know, for sex. The fourth chapter follows Tetsizo, who is Ken Mitsushi, as he's trying to figure out what happened to his daughters. He follows clues that were left by Yuka, and using his skills as a reporter, it leads him to learn about this suicide club. The movie does fill in a lot of things behind the scenes from it, 
and from that movie we also get that major event of the 54 young women who committed suicide tetsizu is to blame for his daughter's leaving and what happens to his wife taiko who is sane miyata she can't handle her daughter's leaving either but Tetsuzo also admits that he chose his job over his family, and there's also a generation gap. He either cannot see that Nuriko is unhappy, or he willfully ignored it. He isn't connecting with his children and doesn't see the truth. It's sad to be honest and see how everything ends up as well. To shift gears here to, and take it over to the pacing, I do think that we have some slight issues here if I'm going to be honest. It just runs too long. Runtime clocks in around 159 minutes, and I think there's quite a bit here that could have been cut out without sacrificing anything with the story. What I found interesting is that this is based off of a novel that was also written by Sono, and during his interview he talks about what he adapted other writers' work, and he seemed hesitant. It feels like he adapted everything from the novel and didn't want to cut anything, which I think hurts the flow of the movie in my opinion, as having taken a screenwriting class Novels can work differently than movies, as there's more of a structure you kind of have to have pretty much everything fall into, and there's just a little bit too much for the movie here. That's not to say I hated this, because that's far from the case. There's a quite a bit of it that made me feel anxious, and the mystery really worked. I even like the ending. It isn't how I normally prefer movies, but it works for how things play out, and I really does feel like it fits the tone. As for the acting, I thought this was one of the strongest parts of the movie. I like how it established... Fukushi, from the timid girl that we see in the beginning to where she ends up working with Kumiko in Tokyo. There's a drastic change and we see her living out her emotions with clients who aren't really her family. It all comes to a head with the climax as well. Mitsushi is also intriguing as we get growth from him as well. He is the crux of what happens to all the bad things that are going on to the family. And he hits rock bottom in order to fix things. This is a redemption story of sorts but not necessarily with a happy ending. Toshitaka, I thought was really good as well. Toshugumi is interesting as she is villainous, but I also feel bad for her. She's a broken young woman who's hurting others, but also giving them a family that they desire. There are some deep-seated issues there that she's ignoring with herself, as deep down that's all she really wants. She just has dealt with bad things that she has put up a wall and refuses to feel. I would say that the rest of the cast really does run this out for what was needed. This movie is a bit lighter on the horror than I was expecting. I bring this up here as there's not a lot in the way of effects. The horror that we get from this is the underworld that this family ends up dealing with. The blood that we get here does look good. We get a little bit of the over-the-top blood sprays during the major suicide scene, as that's where we get issues which I'm assuming are from Suicide Club. The climax has some blood, but I think that's really about it. The cinematography though was well done. We're delving into the past, so it does have some hazy look to it. I thought this was effective, and the movie is shot well overall. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. My favorite selection is the same song that is used on the DVD menu. It is a classical-sounding song that is just unnerving with coupled with some of the things that we're seeing. This isn't horror in the traditional sense. It's really just anxious, driving feeling of seeing the things that this family is dealing with. And I thought the score really fit for what was needed. Now, with that said, this is an intriguing film. I'm a bit upset that I watched this out of order but again from what i've read and kind of heard it doesn't affect too much i think this has an interesting social commentary of what the characters are dealing with the acting really does help to bring this to life with a soundtrack that fits very well there's not a lot of a way of effects and if i have anything negative to say though it would be that it just runs a bit too long so it does get a bit repetitive 
Not enough to ruin this though, and I still enjoyed what we're seeing. I will warn you that this is from Japan. I watched it with subtitles on. I'm not sure if there's a dub version or not, so if you can't get past that, I would avoid checking this out. If you can though, I would recommend giving this a viewing as there are just some interesting things here that are relevant to things around the world, as well as kind of giving you a different look into a culture that might be different from your own. So my rating here though would be an eight out of 10. All right, and for the next film that I'm going to be covering here, it will be Fantasy Island from 2020. This was directed by Jeff Wadlow. It was also co-written by him along with Jillian Jacobs and Christopher Roach. It is starring Michael Pena, Maggie Q, and Lucy Hale. This is a adventure, comedy, horror, mystery film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 1.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a horror adaptation of the popular 70s TV show about a magical island resort. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I only went to see this for my year-end list, as well as for my podcast here. The last couple years, I've tried to make sure that I hit all the, quote, major, unquote, releases that hit the theater to support the genre. I didn't have the highest hopes for this one, but I was also not coming in to hate it either. I like to come in as even keel as I can and just let the film kind of either impress me or, you know, not. So that's where I was at coming in. And then I was expecting something similar to like a Happy Death Day, which I know was pretty polarizing for fans of the genre, but I still thought that one was, you know, pretty fun. And just to kind of give some background information, just a little bit more from the synopsis, we at first see a woman running away from people in the forest and then comes out to you know, hide inside this house, uh, which is the main resort, before she is taken. And then we have a seaplane that arrives on the island, and disembarking from it are Gwen Olson, who is Maggie Q, Melanie Cole, who is Lucy Hale, Patrick Sullivan, who is Austin Stowell, Brax Weaver, who is Jimmy O. Yang, and his brother JD, who is Ryan Hansen. They're met with a staff member named Julia, who is Parisa Fitzhenley, and then pretty soon after, we end up getting to meet our host, who is Mr. Rourke, and fills us in on the rules of this island, which are that you only get one fantasy, and you have to allow it to play to completion, even if things aren't going the way that you want. And that's exactly what ends up happening, is we do get some dark turns here that reveal that there is actually a plot to why everybody is here, but they all have their own fantasies that all coincide in the end as well. Now, I kind of already led into this a little bit where unlike many of my cohorts in the horror community i don't necessarily despise pg-13 horror films as i feel like they have their place not all of these movies that we watch need to ramp up the blood and gore to be effective an example going back to happy death day that's more of a comedy with slasher elements i didn't think that movie was great but i had fun with it this one here is really taking more of these slasher elements, but mixing in adventure, fantasy, and mystery. If you're not going to go hard R with the blood and kills, though, you do really need to have some secondary elements to make your movie work. Now, to start off with what I liked, there's a mystery and story underneath everything that is happening on the island. This connects all the characters, and I like that. I will admit, I was starting to get a bit bored, though, until the plot really surfaced. That's where it caught my interest. And then shifting slightly to a negative though about this, there's really only one of these initial fantasies that's actually horror, which that would be Melanie's torturing her bully from when she was a child. And then we get a dark manifestation of a doctor that she dealt with also as a child who goes by the name of Dr. Torture, who is portrayed by an Ian Roberts. And then I would say the other fantasies do take this turn though as everything progresses. 
not necessarily going full horror, but there are some pretty scary things that happen with them. Now, the major issue I had with this movie, though, is the pacing. This runs 109 minutes, and I think that's too long. What makes it wild, though, is that it doesn't take long to get into it. We get the fantasies of all the characters before they start to play out in ways that they weren't expecting. The problem then becomes it takes too long to get into what has brought them together and the truth. I lost interest, I'm not going to lie, and I didn't really find things all that interesting in the second act until, as I said, things got brought together. It does pull me back in around that time, and I thought the ending was fine. It has a nice little nod to the original show. I've never seen an episode of it, so I actually had to look it up to understand. I figured that's where they were going, but I kind of just wanted to read up a little bit. This is slightly problematic, as this is a movie directed towards a younger audience. I don't know if you're going to get a lot of people in the cinema or to see this that enjoyed the original show or its remake, so this could be lost on them. You're also not going to get my age group or younger to use this as a reason to go back and watch the original show either, in my opinion. What I will give credit here is to the actors and their performances. I'm a fan of Pena, and I thought he was fine for this role. He does play at Cryptic, which makes sense for the island he works at and how the and what he's doing to progress the story. Maggie Q feels like the most accomplished aside from him, and that would make her the other star, I would say. The problem with having four main characters, though, is that they do disappear for stretches. She's brooding with her past, and I thought that worked. And I was actually really impressed with Hale here. She's quite forward to start out with, which is different from her roles in stuff like Truth or Dare. There's more to her as we learn more about her past. And I thought Stowell was fine along with Doubleday, Yang, and Hansen. And I did like cameos that we have Michael Rooker is in this. We have Mike Vogel, Kim Coates, said earlier Roberts. There is Robbie Jones and Goran D. Cluett as well. That will take me to the effects here. To be honest, they're a little bit light. We do get some CGI, but they actually don't go all that heavy in, from what I remember. It's usually used to make someone's eyes go dark, some smoke as well, or having people disappear before they're seen. A lot of this I associate with being hallucinations, so I'm willing to allow you know more CGI for things like that. So overall, this is not a big deal and it doesn't really affect anything where I was bothered. Being that this is PG-13, it's lighter on the blood. They do have some guns here, so I think that's their way of avoiding using, you know, more of stabbing things where you'd have to go a little bit heavier with blood. And then I would just say that the cinematography is fine overall. And now with that said, I never try to come to a movie to hate it before I've seen it. This does some good things for sure. I like the underlying mystery of the movie. I think the reveal of the truth is good and incorporating a bit of supernatural elements as well. The acting is solid across the board, and I don't think there was really any issues for the effects. This does run a bit long, which caused me to lose interest. The soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also didn't hurt my opinion either. If you like Blumhouse-type films, I would say to give this a viewing. It's not bad, and I would say that my rating here is that it's just slightly over average, and I think that it really just doesn't do enough for me to you know, warrant going any higher. So I actually came in with a 6 out of 10 for this movie. And next I have another 2020 release of Brahms the Boy 2. This is directed by William Brent Bell. It is written by Stacy Minear. It is starring Katie Holmes, Owain Yaoman, and Christopher Convery. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 1.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a after a family moves into the Hillshire mansion, their young son soon makes friends with a lifelike doll called Brahms. Now, when I first heard about this movie, I was intrigued to see what they were going to do with it. 
I was late to the game with the first one, but after seeing it, I really enjoyed it. I didn't necessarily think it was the best film, but it did some really good things. And I ended up having the afternoon off of work and decided to check this movie out here. Which just to expand on the synopsis a little bit, there is Liza, who is Holmes, as she's coming home from work. In the background, we can see someone who's out of focus and her calling out to her son. When she goes into the kitchen, her son scares her and he is Jude, who is Convery. And the both of them call her husband and the boy's father through like a FaceTime call. And that is Sean, who is Yaoman. Now, the mother and son settle in for the night, but something wakes up Liza as they're a victim of a home invasion. Now, Liza and Jude aren't really handling it very well, so it is recommended that they go and get out of the city. And that is where it takes them to the guest house, to the large manor from the previous film. And while they're walking, Jude finds the doll Brahms buried and decides to bring it home where his mother cleans it up. And he starts to befriend it. But it is during this that they learn the rules from the previous film. But things don't necessarily go as they would like. But the interesting thing is that the boy, he hasn't talked since the attack. But he seems to be opening up through this doll. So the parents are faced with, do they get rid of this creepy thing? Or do they allow their son to keep using it? As it does seem to be getting him out of his shell. But the problem is, darker things start to happen around them. Now this movie does do some things also that I liked. Now what I first want to go over is kind of a couple of our leads here. First, we have Liza. She is, quote, normal, unquote, until the attack through the home invasion. I like that she becomes the one who is more against Brahms, but she's also an unreliable person because she is dealing with her own mental issues or the lack thereof dealing with her own mental issues. Her husband, though, gets to the point where he's questioning her more than Jude, and I like that. It is subtle, though, and some of the things that we're seeing are from her point of view, so we don't necessarily know if we can trust it or not. And then as for Jude, much like his mother, he's traumatized by those events and his way of coping is not talking. He has a pad of paper that he writes things down on to communicate. His parents are being patient and their doctor who is treating him is Lawrence as she is portrayed by Anjali J. And she tells them not to push as he could go into a shell farther. Now it becomes a strange duality that Liza is noticing some dark aspects in her son but he's also showing progress and I thought this was an interesting dynamic to kind of explore here now I don't want to spoil this or the previous film so I'm going to tiptoe around a little bit of what happened and how this works into that I do like that they're in the same place the dolls the same and the events really did happen from the first movie we even get introduced to them through some investigation and explanation which I thought that was all good it would be hard to do something like they did in that first movie. And I like what they do here and the history that is revealed about the doll as well. For me, it worked. I do feel like there's some slight cheats, but I'm willing to overlook that. And I think it also works well that the writer and director here are the same two people that did the original film. So they're much more in tune with that. And it's not like bringing in, you know, a new director, a new writer where they're going to kind of do their own thing. And so I'm hoping at least this duo knows more than what we are given in the first film and that is kind of what is being revealed here as for the pacing this is probably where i had my biggest problem i just had trouble paying attention to this for the most part there's not to say this was boring because i don't feel like that's the case i think it really does well in establishing our characters getting them to the new place where the doll is found the section where i lost my interest though is right after that it is funny though the original had the main character that was following the rules where this one they're just literally violating them constantly 
I think that's where part of my issue comes from. There isn't really much in the way of repercussions for that, and the only thing that does happen is much later in the movie. I feel like it might have been better suited to have Liza or even Sean tormented differently than what we got. I was on board though for the research and thought the ending worked as well. As for the acting, I thought it was pretty solid. There's some things interesting here that Holmes stars in this. She seems to be the only one that's not British, even though it takes place in the United Kingdom. It doesn't hurt anything, but I just think it's a good performance, and I just am shocked that nobody really kind of addresses this in the least bit. Uh, Yaoman was solid as the stable parent who tries to be the peacekeeper. I also thought that Convery was really good. What is interesting is we see him normal briefly. Most of the movie, he has to convey everything through facial expressions. We see him slowly change to be more like Brahms as things progress, which I thought was great. There's also another character, Joseph, who is portrayed by Ralph Innocent. What I like about him is that he's just a large man in general like not fat but just a beefy type guy and he's very imposing so i thought it was solid along with the rest of the cast that rounded this out for what was needed as for the effects here i really don't have much negative to say if i'm honest from what i remember in the original the doll seemed to move but you never saw it this one we actually get to see the doll move and with the explanation that comes it makes me wonder if it was also possible that some of this could have been happening in the original as well at least at times this can be subtle, which makes it even better. I say that there's a scene with in the dark with a flashlight. I thought I saw something, and it creeped me out a lot. There's a bit of CGI, but not enough to bother me. It really seemed to enhance if memory serves. The last thing would be that some things happen at the end that I thought was a cool look. The cinematography I thought was really good. They really use the whole frame where there'll be things in the background that are blurry, and it can be a bit unnerving. And they'll actually change the focus where you can see that and then the foreground becomes blurry. I kind of like doing it the way that they did here as I thought that worked pretty well. And the last thing would be the soundtrack. From what I remember, it fit for what was needed on the whole. It didn't necessarily stand out. What I wanted to bring up though was pretty early on, Judas playing a little piano. And I'm pretty sure the song he's playing was used in the previous film. They don't ever establish if Jude knows how to play the piano. I know when Liza comes in, she's just kind of like telling him how good it is. So I'm assuming he does at least have a basic understanding and i did think that was a good callback to the original film and then we get to see something in the main house to go with that as well which is i'm assuming the sheet music for the song he was playing it is an older song which makes it even better even more so if it's one that he didn't know how to play through his training if that is the case and now with that said i tried to come in this without any expectations and having only seen the original film once so i was pretty much a blank slate do i think this is a great film no but i think there's some good things i like the depth of the characters and the actors performance in bringing them to life there are some interesting backstory elements that are introduced with minimal violation of continuity which is a big thing for me the effects work for what was needed and i'd say that the soundtrack fit as well the only issue i really had is that i found it to be a bit boring for whatever reason through a few stretches i think what they focused on is part of the reason i would say though this is slightly over average not great but as a sequel, it works, and surprisingly, this is probably could also be watched as a standalone, as there's not a lot that kind of correlates back. It's just more of deepening the backstory if you want to have that, which I do find impressive if you can make a sequel that can also just be watched on its own. But my rating here is going to be a 6 out of 10. Okay, and next I have the documentary of Cropsy that came out in 2009. This was directed as well as co-starring... Barbara Bracasillo, and then it is co-directed as well with Joshua Zeman, who also wrote this. He also stars in this, as well as Bill Ellis. 
Now, this is a documentary crime horror mystery film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being realizing the urban legend of their youth has actually come true, two filmmakers delve into the mystery surrounding five missing children and the real-life boogeyman linked to their disappearances. Now, I believe that I first heard about this through the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through to kind of fill in any gaps in my viewing, but I also know that this was talked about on a podcast. I'm not sure which one, but I know I briefly heard a little bit about this. So I was intrigued to check this out, as I knew this is the name of the killer from the 1981 film The Burning, and it appears that this is actually the name of a boogeyman in New Jersey, New York area. Now, aside from just knowing that the title of this movie, you know, from The Burning, I thought this was going to be a documentary about the urban legend killer from what I was talking about. That is how this starts, as given the background information, but we don't get much after that fact, though. It does seem that Zeman and Brasio who made this are also people that interject themselves into the documentary itself. Both of them grew up in the, they both of them grew up in Staten Island and have variations of the story that they were told growing up. What makes this even scarier though, is the other history of this borough that they grew up in. Now this history is the fact that Staten Island is really kind of the last of the boroughs to get populated. And before it did, it was a woodland area. It is also depressing as this is where the New York landfill is located. But not only that, is the only thing just getting dumped there. They have a mental hospital and then another hospital nearby where they put people with tuberculosis as well as other dangerous afflictions. There's also an interesting dynamic that Geraldo Rivera did an expose back when he was a news reporter about this place and helped closure eventually. This isn't where the story ends though. The major story of this documentary is the disappearance of a Jennifer Schwager. She had Down syndrome and her mother spearheaded a search for her to be found. Now the prime suspect was a man named Andre Rand who was a homeless drifter that was living in the abandoned school and hospital. Now he had an odd look about him so he was already branded the person who was responsible just because of that. And there was some circumstantial evidence against him. The question is though, did he do it? Now there are a series of disappearances to which this documentary is correlating to the urban legend of Cropsey and it being attributed to Rand. This really focuses on trying to present as much evidence against him as well as in support of him not being the killer and showing us information from around the time of the initial investigation as well as the present when that was made. What makes this different though as a documentary is that it isn't that much different from like a making a murder or don't mess with cats, which I wouldn't necessarily place as horror. The horrors of a serial killer or a killer in general are definitely in that character in real life. I feel that this falls into the horror camp as the fact that this is an urban legend is based in horror movies and how this documentary is presented is darker than those other ones. Not to say that the subject matter isn't. Anytime you have somebody who's murdered or it is way more horrific than any movie. I just mean that it is presented much more like a horror movie, even though the events here are real. I do have to give credit though to Zeman and Brasio. They do well at presenting this without bias. One of my big issues with Making a Murderer is the research I did afterwards. They left out a lot and it slanted in favor of that guy not being the killer. Now I don't want to delve into that for a documentary about this other person, 
but this is really shown much more in a way of you know giving us the facts and letting us decide so just to kind of give what i thought for me i personally have a bit of trouble believing that 100 percent rand is the killer i was confused if in the beginning this man was a patient or a worker at the hospital before it closed or not as they kind of established that he might have had some mental illnesses himself but there's more information as this thing goes on that makes me question that and i do feel that he was homeless and that he was convicted on circumstantial evidence and this was pretty much more of these people just looked at him and felt he was guilty and not necessarily looking at the evidence to say if it was you know because from what i've seen and i have my doubts to if he did this or if he did he was not the only person that was involved the last thing i want to go over here is how creepy this abandoned hospital is there are tunnels underneath where it is claimed that homeless people live the two documentary people actually go through there and you can see evidence of that Rand was thought to be down there with others which is probably true on top of that there are some religious people who claimed he was innocent or at least only guilty of kidnapping here that gives it a darker turn and it could be mixed up with the same people as the son of sam killer david berkowitz there's not a lot of evidence to support that but it does give an even more eerie feel with that information you know being out there now just to wrap this up not the best documentary i've ever seen but i do like how it's constructed i think it's done well without an agenda and just presenting the facts i do have a slight issue with the title and drawing fans in the horror genre to the fact that this is the same killer from the burning the parallels that they drew ended up getting me over that without you know being completely upset it doesn't ruin anything as this is an urban legend for the area i am interested in looking a bit more into this case to see what could have been left out as this did keep me interested all the way through for sure and i would rate this as above average overall so my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. All right, and next I have The Omen from 1976. This is directed by Richard Donner. It is written by David Seltzer. It stars Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, and Harvey Stevens. This is a horror film that is a joint production from the United Kingdom and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being mysterious deaths surround the an American ambassador, could the child that he is raising actually be the Antichrist? Now, this is a film that I'm pretty sure I saw after the remake. For whatever reason, though, it just eluded me until college when I started to seek out more of the classics that all horror fans probably should have seen. And I'm pretty sure this is only my second time that I've ever seen this one. Which, to kind of play off of this, is that we have Robert Thorne, who is Peck, as he is the ambassador, and... He is trying to get to the hospital on June 6th at 6 a.m., where his wife, Catherine, who is Remick, is having a baby. When he arrives there, he's told that his baby was stillborn, but that there was a mother who passed away while she was giving birth, and that child doesn't have any other family. So it's decided that they will just take that child, and then that child grows up to be Damien, played by Stevens. Now, weird things start to happen at a birthday party where the nanny decides to hang herself for Damien, and things kind of spiral out of control where a father Brennan reaches out to Robert to tell him that his son is the Antichrist and that he has to defeat it. And then weird things keep happening, which leads him to Keith Jennings, who is David Warner. And they look into what could possibly be going on here. Now, to kind of go off of that, this film doesn't really play its hand too early, and I really like that. And this film came out in, you know, 76, where it was at the height of the Satanic Panic era. And I love films that deal with religion and play it into horror where we get the perversion of it toward the side of evil 
I kind of already recapped it, but when Robert, you know, arriving at the hospital to realize his baby is stillborn, the whole thing here starts off with a lie and is kind of shady that he would just take this child. But his reasoning behind it, though, is that it'll really devastate his wife to know what happened. So he decides that the easiest thing to do would just be to kind of cover this up, which definitely feels like something that would happen for, you know, the Antichrist to be raised. And this does have a slow burn feel, but not in a way that is really all that slow, to be honest. Because Catherine first notices there's something might be wrong with Damien when they keep going to see animals and, you know, they really get spooked the moment he comes closer to it. And then what I like here is it also plays with the mother's intuition. Now, there's another scene where he has a blow up as they're supposed to be going to a wedding that's in a church. And all of these things keep being presented in rational explanations, but it's just us as viewers know that something else is up. And then what I also like is that Robert is dealing with... Is his son the Antichrist or not? Pretty much to the end, and I love that. He's seen evidence, but what he has to do is pretty horrific, and that's what makes him question it. And what I was kind of saying with the mother's intuition, she can just feel that there are things wrong with this boy, and even makes a statement that it's not her son. And I really just love that there's no way that she could know that, but when Robert hears this information, it kind of chills his blood because he knows the truth of what really happened, that this isn't their son. And just somebody that they, you know, one that a baby they took home to raise in, in the place of the one that they thought was stillborn. But I will say, there is a subplot here that I'm not in love with, with the reporter Keith. I don't necessarily know if I like the pictures showing what could possibly be happening to these people. I just feel like it's a bit forced to have Keith become a major player later. But I do like how that subplot comes to an end. I take this more as that Robert has to have somebody to help him with this investigation. So we obviously have a photographer here who mostly works for newspapers, so he knows how to investigate and has an eye for detail. And then in general, this feels like something that is needed for the movie, so I won't say it ruins anything. It just feels, like I said, forced. This is also paced in a way that's never boring. I like that it slowly builds to the point of view where the viewer knows is happening, but the characters themselves don't necessarily. And the characters seem to be putting things together, so that also helps you know, in not only building but figuring out the mystery. Being that this runtime is 111 minutes, it doesn't feel like it. And I think that this is really because there isn't really any time wasted. Nothing outside of that one subplot feels forced, rushed, or it doesn't really drag either. There's also seems to be a few different self-fulfilling prophecies, which is a trope that I think is great in horror movies. And we do get a few of those here. It makes me question, do we really know at the end whether Damien is the Antichrist? Not necessarily. All the evidence points to that. But I just like how everything ends... And the final image is just great. As for the acting, I thought this is having a cast that is really strong. Peck is such a legendary actor from the past, and I love that he took on this role. He's great as his politician, which adds a layer to the story. He's in the limelight because of it, so he really can't do anything as it would cause a scandal. And then Remick is really good as she is descending into madness. I love what I was saying earlier is that it plays with the mother's intuition. She doesn't know things. But she feels them, and I like that aspect. Warner is someone that I knew growing up for more kid-friendly films, as I know he was the doctor in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. So I love seeing him in things like this. He's great as this secondary role to help drive the story. I like Whitelaw, who is Mrs. Blaylock, as it's Billy Whitelaw, is her full name. And she's the nanny who takes over and... We just don't feel there's anything good about her, and the parents don't really have a reason to distrust her, but just how she shows up kind of makes the mother feel uneasy. I think that Stevens does really well in this limited role as the child. He just has a creepy look about him for Damien, 
but still seems to act pretty normal outside of that. And there's just a few different times where he freaks out about things. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The effects in this movie are really subtle, actually. And I think that really helps to build the atmosphere. As I've said, things are played subtle, so we don't really know if their fears are founded. We get to see what happens to Father Brennan, but no one else really does. They just see the after effects. I thought most of the effects looked real, and I love that most of this, these are all done practically. Now, I do have an issue with a death later on that we can see was done with a prop head, but it still kind of has a bit of charm there for the era. So I would say I think overall the effects were well done, as was the cinematography. And the last thing to cover before I wrap this up would be the soundtrack. It is mostly chorus-style music that is done in Latin. I think it just adds to the ambiance of religion, but it also gives a spooky feel that works with what the movie is going for, because you know when you start to hear that, that there's something not good is going to happen. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of want to seek out this for mood music while I'm writing. Now, that said, this movie is really a classic. I love just how we're playing on this parent's feelings of could their child be evil. They don't want to believe it, and things are built on secrets. I'm not a religious person, so seeing this family really isn't, you know, either coming to terms with the facts that they're presented with is great. I think the acting really helps to bring this to life. The movie is slow in its build, but in a way where things are presented to drive the story and it never comes off as boring. The effects are solid along with the cinematography. And I really like the soundtrack that is coupled with everything. If there's any gripe, it would just be the one subplot with Keith just kind of feels a bit forced, but I understand why it's there. This is a great movie, one of the best in this subgenre for sure. I would recommend seeing this if you're a horror or a non-horror fan alike. You're probably not listening to this if you're not a horror fan, but I still think this holds up even almost after 45 years later. And my rating for The Omen would be a 9.5 out of 10. Now those are all the movies that I watched for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Okay, and for my first featured review of this episode is going to be 
the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Now, this is going into the Centennial Club because this came out in 1920. It was directed by Robert Venny. It was written by Carl Mayer and Hans Janowitz. It stars Werner Krauss, Conrad Viet, and Frederick Feher. This is a fantasy horror mystery thriller from Germany. This is currently sitting on an 8.1 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being hypnotist Dr. Caligari, who is portrayed by Krauss, uses a Sambalis Cesare, who is Viet, to commit murders. Now, just to give you a little bit of background for myself with this film, I'm going to play my cards immediately. This is one of my favorite films of all time. Now, I've seen it a handful of times. The first time was during my first quarter in college. I was required to take intro to world cinema. I went to Ohio State. I did not have what they deemed a performing arts background at all from what happened in high school because my school didn't really offer anything like that. So this is one of the first films that I watched in that class. At the time, I was bullheaded. Uh, but I did enjoy it to an extent. It wasn't until some years on the road that I ended up loving this movie. At the time, I was really against watching black and white films. So it was fitting that my first time seeing this was in class on the big screen. And one of my last viewings of it was actually at the Gateway Film Center as they were showing it during their Horror 101 series they were doing. And then I rewatched it again before recording this, as it is now going to be considered part of, like I said earlier, my Centennial Club. Now, this movie begins with two men in a garden. One of the men is Rudolf Lettinger, as he's telling the other one that he's been haunted by spirits to the point where he had to flee his home and family. We then see a woman in white walk through. Her name is Jane Olson, and she's played by Lil Dagover. The younger man is Francis, who is Faher, as he tells the other guy that that is his fiance and that they've gone through a lot as well, and he goes into that story. We then learn that a fair is coming to a town. Dr. Caligari goes to see the clerk about getting a permit for a display he wants to do at this fair. When he tells the man what it is, it involves a sambalist. The man in the office just laugh at him. If you don't know, a sambalist is someone who sleeps all the time, but Dr. Caligari can wake them up. The person in question here, as I said earlier, is Cesare, and he supposedly can tell you all of the secrets of the past, as well as predicting the future. Then we have Alan, who is portrayed by Hans Heinrich von Twardowski, goes over to Francis's place so they can both go to the fair. Now, they end up going to Dr. Caligari's tent. During this performance, he wakes up Cesare, and he announces the abilities that Cesare has. Alan rushes the stage to ask a question, as everybody seems to be a little bit timid about doing so with Francis following. Alan then asks what, when he will die, to which Cesare answers before dawn. And then we end up learning that there has been a murder that night, and the two men end up seeing a poster for it. On their route, they run into Jane. Both of the men are in love with her, but after they walk her home, they make a pact that whoever she picks to fall in love with, they'll still be friends regardless. Alan is then murdered that night by a strange person in his room, Francis is distraught and promises that he will solve the murders. He then seeks out the aid of Jane's father, who is Dr. Olson, portrayed by Lettinger, and together they're trying to get to the bottom of all of this. To complicate matters, though, there is a man who is trying to take advantage, according to him, of these murders, and he is arrested, so the cops kind of back off a little bit, but Francis believes that Cesare and Dr. Caligari have something involved with this, so they're doing whatever they can to try to prove this. Now, I've already laid out my history with this film, but I have to acknowledge the influence that it had on Hollywood and how film stories are told now. A little bit more of my background, I guess. 
I should give that I took German as my foreign language in college as it was required to graduate. And to pass my final class for that requirement, I had to do a presentation completely in German. So being that I've loved film since I was growing up, I decided to do German Expressionism, the movement, which this movie falls into. Now, those of you might not realize what this is, so I'll just give you a little bit more that you've seen influence from this movement if you've ever watched a Tim Burton film especially A Nightmare Before Christmas, Corpse Bride, or Beetlejuice. I felt that to open up this review, I should probably bring that up. Since the story is what really draws me in most for films, I will touch on that now. Being that this is the 1920s and early stages of film, the story is extremely straightforward. This sometimes is problematic for me because it just kind of runs through whatever they're trying to get across and doesn't really delve too much into things. And it also sometimes creates a low running time. But for this movie, it doesn't really seem to do that. And I realize that more and more as I watch this, there's a lot going on here. I could be wrong, but this concept of ensembleists being controlled to commit crimes is something that we don't really see a lot today in film. And I like that. And from what I gather, Dr. Caligari is kind of a folk story. I'm not sure if this is a real one in Germany or if this is something that was just made up for the film. But I find that part of it to be interesting. Now, there's a reveal at the end of this film that is something we see quite a bit today, but for this time period of the 20s, I was highly impressed. It's actually something that I don't really like anymore because I do feel like it's overplayed, but for what they're doing here, it actually really works, especially with how distorted the reality is of what's on screen. Going back to a little bit of German expressionism is that there's usually a nightmare quality to everything, and this fits in with that perfectly. It's actually quite depressing, which makes sense since this is right after World War One, and Germany was really struggling. I ended up watching a documentary on the DVD that I have, which explains how this almost predicts the Nazi regime that would take over Germany. I can't necessarily get on board with that, but I can see with how they're feeling that the German people were ripe for somebody like Hitler to take power. And that documentary actually had some interesting parallels to the fact that Dr. Caligari could almost be like Hitler and that Cesare could be almost like his SS or even more of, you know, his secret police that he had going on as they're kind of doing crimes in the shadows and getting away with it, and that nobody really seems to know what is happening, which is kind of fitting for the German people with the general populace here, where the murders are happening, where they're in fear, but they're also kind of using this fear to be blinded and to have fun with it, where, you know, these things are going on in the background. Now for this section, I really also wanted to kind of go back onto the set. It is filmed on a stage, almost as you would for a play, the background is drawn, but what really makes it great is that it is distorted. There are no straight lines, and it doesn't necessarily look real. This adds to the atmosphere of the film, even more so when you get to the ending. They use a light and dark filter to simulate day and night, which I thought was clever for early cinema. They will use the camera iris to focus your attention on something, or if someone is looking you know, through a tighter space, or if they want to do just a close-up of somebody's face. Since the film is silent, they have to use title cards for exposition, and even those are distorted with the writing as well as shapes in the background. And I feel like this also helps to build tension. I think they did a solid job at building that, and with the low running time, it works really well in my opinion. This movie clocks in at 67 minutes, and I've seen other films from the era that can go much longer. It can be sometimes hard to keep focused when you just have, you know, music playing and just watching what is going on. But for whatever reason, this movie just really commands my attention when it does. Now, acting is something harder that can be, you know, difficult to judge for the silent era as well. They have to overact, 
and it is kind of what you'd see in the stage play due to the fact that you can't hear them. I will say that thanks to the high quality of this restoration, you can really see how well the makeup is done on them. Kraus was solid and looked menacing. Viet has a creepy introduction and his makeup is also well done. I thought as the film goes on, I like to see that Fairher looks more and more troubled. Dagover doesn't get a lot of screen time, but when she's does, she's comparable to Fairher. She is also quite attractive, which is kind of weird to say for somebody that, you know, was alive 100 years ago, but I stand by my statement. And I said the rest of the cast rounded this out for the movie as what was needed. And the score is something that is also hard to judge with these films. I'm not sure if what I've heard is the original, but whatever the more classical score is, it's definitely well done. At times it is ominous, and when it does, it helps to, you know, build the tension, fold scenes. And it ramps up, and that's definitely a plus. My last viewing, the disc had a soundtrack done by somebody named DJ Spooky, I believe. There were times that I thought it did add a bit extra to the movie, while other times I didn't think it necessarily fit, and it took me out of it. I think this is something interesting, though, that with silent films is that you can use different soundtracks, as you don't necessarily know what was originally played with the movie, where you could also have, like, a classical score to fit with them. And I also like seeing sometimes a more modern take on it. I know I've seen a Nosferatu version with kind of a more industrial sounding soundtrack that it adds a different feel to it. I prefer for this movie the more classical score as I thought it fit better. Now with that said, this is a film that in my opinion is great. I am combining the movie and its historical significance into my final rating. This film and the movement had a pretty huge part in changing Hollywood and movies that we even see today. The story itself isn't complex, and the film has a low running time, but it doesn't necessarily hurt that for me. The acting is solid for the era, the backgrounds are wonderful, and as well as the score to the film. I will warn you, this is from Germany, but it shouldn't affect anything, because you are going to be watching a silent film where you need to have title cards as the exposition. So you do have to watch it, at least my version had to have subtitles on because all of the title cards are in German. Now, I will warn you, it is from the 1920s, it's in black and white. I would recommend that if a diehard horror fan and you like to see more of the history of the genre, I would recommend it. If not, this probably won't be for you. And I personally rate this as a 10 out of 10. This film is delving into seeing these characters kind of descend into madness. This the nightmare of somebody in a mental institution? Or did all these events really happen and it just drove somebody insane? The film doesn't necessarily explain that, which I love, and that is why I think this couples well for the Centennial Club with the movie that I have as my second featured review in The Lodge. And it's just interesting that you can have movies, you know, 100 years apart that are delving into similar ideas and similar concepts, and that they can still be paired so well together, in my opinion. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for The Lodge, as that is all I really have to say about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So, how would you feel about going to the mountains for Christmas with Grace? She really wants to get to know you guys. That's our mom's hat. Oh, I'm sorry. I... You okay? I don't want to leave you here with the kids if you're not feeling up to it. Uh, I'm feeling fine. It was my idea, and it's a couple days. I can do a couple days. Okay, guys, I'm off. Have fun. What is that? It's Christ. Everyone committed suicide except for her. 
Repent and you will find salvation. Guys! Things are very uncomfortable between us. And we're stuck in a house together. Talking about look outside. We're stuck here. Okay, and for my second featured review of this week, I know I normally like to do movies that I've never seen before, but I had went to see The Lodge for the second time as I originally got to catch it at the Nightmares Film Festival, but then it came back around and it was being shown at the Gateway Film Center. So I decided to take my girlfriend, and so I'm gonna go ahead and make that the review here. So as I was saying, this is The Lodge. It was made in 2019. It is co-directed by Severin... Fiali and Veronica Franz and then they also wrote this with Sergio Cassi. It is starring Richard Armitage, Alicia Silverstone, and Riley Keogh. This is a drama horror thriller from the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a soon-to-be stepmom is snowed in with her fiance's two children at a remote holiday village. Just as relations begin to thaw between the trio, some strange and frightening events take place. Now, I kind of already led into this a little bit, but this film was on my radar back in early of 2019. I knew it was doing its festival rounds, so this was one that I was just waiting to get released to check out. I lucked out seeing the regional premiere at the Nightmares Film Festival, and I knew I had to see this one for sure. And then I got the chance when I had a couple of films that I threw out to my girlfriend and she agreed to check this one out, even though I was a little bit nervous knowing how heavy this movie can get. So we start out with a mother who is Laura, portrayed by Silverstone. She's at home with her two children. Her older son is Aiden, who is Jaden Martell, and then her daughter is Mia, who is played by Leah McHugh. Now, Mia has a dollhouse, which we learn is modeled after the cabin that they're going to go to during the winter. Laura calls her ex-husband, Richard who is Armitage, to bring the children over. And she's also making sure that his new girlfriend won't be there. She is told that Grace, who is Keogh, wouldn't be. But we get a glimpse of her in the window, and then Laura sees her sneaking out the back gate. Through some subtle things, we know that Laura wants to get back with Richard and is devastated to learn that he plans to ask Grace to marry him. This leads to a traumatic event that rocks the family to the core. I don't want to spoil this here, but I will have a spoiler section later on. 
Richard tries to get his children to come around to Grace, but they blame her for what happened. Through some snooping, we learn that Grace has a dark past as her father was the head of a cult, and she is the only survivor. Richard tries to have her over for Thanksgiving, but the children lose their minds, so he has to rethink that. This all leads to a plan for them to go to the cabin for Christmas. He still has to work, so his plan is to take them up, get them acclimated, then go back, forcing the three to kind of work everything out in isolation. There's definitely some awkwardness as Laura decorated the place, and there's still some things that belong to her there, as she was quite religious, which adds for an interesting dynamic that of what happens. They do seem to be making progress, that is, Grace and the two children, until one morning they wake up to everything that they brought is now missing and the cabin is back to looking like before they ever arrived. Now that said, this is a film that I wanted to go a little bit lighter on the recap as it is really a character study of these three and just seeing the descent into madness. And I don't really want to spoil any of the major things because I want you to experience them like I did both times. That I wanted to stay even keel on before my first viewing as there was a bit of hype surrounding this one, I personally would say that this lived up to it and it held up even after that second viewing. It is such a haunting tale that has a brooding atmosphere akin to, I would say, like a hereditary or midsomar. There's an interesting family dynamic. We have children who are living in a broken home after their parents are separated. They want them to get back together, which is understandable, which is exactly what Laura wants as well. Richard, though, has moved on. My girlfriend who saw this with me brought up an interesting point. We see that the children do not like Grace and blame her for what happened. I didn't pick up on this, but she tossed out the idea that Richard had an affair with Grace, so that feeling of blame makes sense. Something else interesting is that Grace is a little bit awkward due to her past. Being that she was raised in a cult, it has lasting effects on her. The social norms don't really seem to be there, and it is reflected in things that she says at times. Now, there's also a religious aspect that I wanted to delve into. The cult Grace was in was religious-based. They took it to the extreme. To the point where they had a suicide cult where the only one to survive was Grace as she is tasked with going out into the world to share the teachings that her father was giving. When they get to the cabin, there's a creepy picture of a nun that is stern looking and is looming over the dinner table as well as a giant cross. Grace is now at least agnostic due to her trauma. As she descends into madness, her religious history flares up, which I found quite intriguing. It can be heard throughout the movie, her father's voice, and it made me wonder for a good portion of this, is she really hearing this or is this in her head? Going along with this idea, what is happening flirts with being supernatural or is it real? I really dug this mystery, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. The morning that they wake up and everything was the way it was before they got there freaked me out. Then every time Grace looks at a certain clock, it shows the date, and it keeps going back to that same one. This is unnerving and makes her start to think that they could have died and are a purgatory. Now, I guess this is a slight spoiler to say that, but this isn't about that so much as the journey to figure out the truth of what is really happening. Now, it takes me to the pacing of the movie, which the runtime clocks in about 100 minutes, and I've heard through a couple podcasts, which I know the first time I heard it personally was JP over with the 22 shots of moods and horror, stating that the first 90 minutes are free, and anything after that, you have to work for it and prove to me that it needs to be there. I completely think this film needed the extra time. There were a few times where my jaw literally dropped in shock. I was sucked into this film and trying to figure out what happened. There were things I even missed that were shared with me later on that made me like this one even more. And then with that said, I thought it was paced very well. And I like 
how it ended, as I'm always down for a bleak ending. During my second viewing, I was getting bored with some of the setup and thought that it might run too long. It is after the reveal about things that I didn't necessarily remember that erased that. So I still agree with this assessment. Moving to the acting, yeah, I feel this is definitely on point. Kyog was great as the lead here. I love how subdued she plays this character, but as things around her start to break down, we see her descend into madness. She's mentally disturbed from her past, and with the stress, we see her reverting. It had me hooked, and I feel horrible for her. It doesn't help that they're snowed in and the power is out. It does give that feel that it's very cold, which is ironic, is during one portion of the movie, they are watching The Thing from John Carpenter on television, and that, I think, is a great parallel. The two children don't like her, so it adds to the isolation. Martell and McHugh did really well as the children. Martell also, you know, was made famous for the two It movies, but I have to say, I'm quite impressed with him for his age and would be intrigued to see what he does going forward. Silverstone and Armitage are both solid in their support as well. As for the effects, we don't really need a lot of them, as it isn't that type of film. To be honest though, the realism of them being stranded in this cabin felt real. We do get some practical effects later on that look good. It feels cold, which is good. And if anything, the cinematography was exceptional. We get a lot of slow zoom ins and outs as it lingers on things, which made it feel even more unnerving. Especially when Grace is descending into madness, we see her just sitting there doing the same things over and over again. And I think that these long takes really do help that. Now with that said, despite my high expectations, I felt this one lived up to them. It is such a haunting film of loss, and I really like how they incorporate that this could be supernatural or that it could not be. It is done in a way that doesn't feel like a cheat as well, as we will see little hints along the way. After the second viewing, I still agree with this, even though some of the things I do have to admit are a bit far-fetched to actually happen. The pacing works to build tension, and I love how everything ended. The acting was really good across the board, which can be tough. Sticking three characters alone for most of the movie. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them. It is shot well, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Overall, I'd say this is a really good movie, and it stuck with me after checking it out as well. I would recommend this to horror and non-horror fans for sure. And I will warn you, this is a heavy movie, and there are a lot of emotions here. My rating also came up slightly, as this is a damn perfect film to me. So my rating here is going to be a 9.5 out of 10. Now, what I'm going to do is take you over to a slight spoiler section here. As always, it'll be time-coded, so if you haven't seen this and want to skip ahead, I will make sure that you have that information available. But I'm going to go ahead and start the spoiler section now. Okay, there's a lot going on in this movie, even though the story isn't the most complex. The first thing is that the event that I hinted at earlier is that Laura kills herself. I toss out this theory to my girlfriend, and she suggested that Richard had an affair with Grace while writing his book about cults. There's a subtle hint from Aiden while he is going through his father's computer for information, and he shares that with Mia. Laura and the children want her to get back together with Richard, but when that isn't the case, you know, she ends everything. Richard keeps pushing these children to get closer to Grace, where Aiden comes up with this plan to what I'm assuming is to scare her off. This is introduced much like in Hereditary through Mia's dollhouse. As we see it, it is modeled after the lodge that they will be staying in. Their plan is to drug Grace with a sleeping pill. They take down all of her decorations, but it was set up with the gas heater that is brought up while they're watching a movie. Grace asks if it is safe to use in the house, but the reason it is there is for Aiden to claim they all died of asphyxiation. 
They're trying to tell Grace that they're in purgatory. She isn't buying it, but she also is on medication, which was also hidden. So she starts to descend into madness when she can't have those pills with her. It doesn't help that Grace has some scary dreams of what she dealt with, and they're getting worse and worse with the stress that is around her. She is sleepwalking, and the children are adding to that as well. After the second viewing, I looked at my girlfriend to say that I hated these children. They're horrible in what they're doing. What is interesting, though, is all these characters are flawed. Richard presumably cheated on his wife with having relations with the subject of his book, and he knew that person was troubled. Grace is obviously troubled, so I feel bad for what the children did to her, but again, it seems she could have been sleeping with a married man. Aiden and Mia are really to blame for all the tragic events, so there's a sick satisfaction in me to see that Richard is killed in front of them. It is horrible for me to say, but I stand by it. This is a really deep movie, and aside from I don't think that everything the children did is plausible, this heavy movie really affected me, and I loved it. Uh, the last thing to kind of go over is that the cult from Grace's past is clearly based on Heaven's Gate, of which 39 members also committed mass suicide in a communal house with shrouds covering their upper bodies. I remember when that actually happened, because I think it was in the early 90s, and they all were wearing like the same Nike shoes and everything. Just kind of interesting that that's where the original idea probably came from. So now with that said, I'm going to go ahead and put an end to this spoiler section. Didn't need to necessarily go on too long, but just wanted to kind of go over some of that information. I'm going to send you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank everybody for listening to episode number 17 of Journey with a Cinephile. To close out the show, if you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews that I have on this episode or any of the ones from previous, I have Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And all of the links will be listed in the show notes below. And if you also want to get in on the chat over on the FlickChat app, my join code is journey with a cinephile, all one word. Kind of get sporadic stuff here and there, but if you want to try to help make that be a little bit more lively, I would definitely appreciate that. And what I'm going to do for the next episode is going to be another Centennial Club. I have a list of only just a few movies that came out from the 1920s that aren't lost and I can still watch. So I'm trying to decide which one I'm going to pair up, but the new movie is going to be this year's The Invisible Man. I already have that review recorded and everything, just trying to figure out what I'm going to pair it up with. So I want to thank you once again for listening. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off, and I hope you have a great day with whatever you decide to do. Thanks once again.